Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Okay, this week on She Wrote Too, we are looking at the author Alice Dewar Miller, who wrote a lovely collection of poetry. Uh, lovely's not really the right word, is no, it, Caroline? No, it's sort of incisive and cutting and satirical collection yeah, that, of poetry. That's, that's the right word, yeah. yes. Called Are Women People? And this started out as a newspaper column. Um, she had these poems published in I think the New, New York, York Tribune. Tribune yeah and then they were later collected into an anthology yes and they were quite influential as it mm. turns out and we'll find out more about yeah. just how influential they were yeah so Alice Dewar Miller is an American writer and she was writing mainly on the theme of women's rights and specifically the suffrage campaigns So we're going to start off with an introduction to the theme of Are Women People with one of her poems, which is in two parts. It is, yes. So So we're going to take one part each. I'll be the kid, shall I? (laughs) You be the kid and I'll I'll be the dad. Right. Father, what is a legislature? A representative body elected by the people of the state. A women people? No, my son. Criminals, lunatics... And women are not people. Do legislators legislate for nothing? Oh no, they're paid a salary. By whom? By the people. Are women people? Of course, my son, just as much as men are. And there we have it. How she nicely puts together how men at the time were using contradictory arguments just to try and retain power for themselves yeah. and keep and it away from women. And that's a theme which runs throughout the collection. It's about the hypocrisy of anti-suffrage arguments. Caroline, you have done some research into Alice and her life. Yes, I have. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so let's do that so that we can get an idea of the context and the background of this amazing writer. So she was born in 1874 in Staten Island, New York, which she actually grew up in New Jersey. And her family were the kind of prominent society people that she would later go on to write about quite a bit, which we'll be talking about later. So they were wealthy. But when she was about 16, they lost their fortune. There was a collapse of Barings Bank in London, but that had huge repercussions across the financial world and affected the US as well. So as a result of that, it turned out that she was going to have to work for a living, which she wouldn't have otherwise done. So she started making some money from writing short stories and poems. She would sell those to magazines. 
and she put herself through college at the same time. She studied maths and astronomy. I suppose I should say math because it's American, <laughs> shouldn't I? Do the but math. anyway, she was at Barnard College, and then after that, she did a bit of teaching, both in maths and in English. And then she got married. This was in 1899 to a chap called Henry Wise Miller. And he had some investments in Costa Rica, so they moved over there. That was going okay to start with, but in the end that didn't work out. So they had to go back to New York, and Alice's writing was the main source of income for their family. Now at this point she was also a member of the Heterodoxy Club, which you've done a little bit of reading about, I think. This was um, a kind of debating society of women in New York, and it's very interesting. Well, women's clubs were becoming more prevalent as a a thing, as an entity at that time, because the suffrage movement had started early in, in the 1800s, and women's clubs were becoming more and more popular as a sort of vehicle for organising campaigns. But this one was particularly interesting because it was a a feminist club, not just a women's club, Mm -hmm. and people were invited to join if they didn't have orthodox views. Mm. So it it was made up of professionals and people such as, you know, doctors, lawyers, academics, artists and people of that ilk. So most of the people there had an undergraduate degree and a lot of postgraduate degree. Mm. So it's quite an intelligent mm. or maybe that's unfair, educated, yeah. I should say, group of people. And so that allowed the development of of ideas and probably allowed those people there, you know, some creative thought and challenging yeah, because it wasn't an echo chamber, was it? There were people no. from a lot of different political views. Yes. There were lesbian and bisexual women, there were straight women, and it was just talking and discussing and debating and not necessarily agreeing. Yes, which actually gave room for development of quite strong ideas and arguments, mm, Yeah, which you might not find in a sort of maybe a more traditional club. But that, that was based in New York, so obviously mm. a lot of, you know, it's a wide net mm. you've got in a big city. Yeah. So it must have been a very interesting place. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd have liked to go there. Yeah, it sounds really um, very interesting. So they were talking about suffrage, but that wasn't the only issue, of course. There were things like reproductive rights. Birth yes. control was difficult to access. Yes. Um, the rights of mothers, which is sometimes something that is overlooked. And um, employment, yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. They were on it. Yeah, they were on all the issues, mm. all the all the women's issues. So they really benefited from that, and it provided a chamber. Which, of course, because they were left out of the political system mm. without having a vote and mm. not being involved, this was this was where they could actually express political views mm. and and campaign. Yeah, so really quite an important place, and obviously allowed her sense of humour to. Mm. <laughs> flourish because that's what she uses so effectively in in her poetry isn't Mm. it yes yeah so she was involved in suffrage campaigning and she was writing these satirical poems as her newspaper column as i said earlier called our women people and these really expose the inconsistencies and the huge double standards that appeared in many anti-suffrage arguments And one of the targets of her satire was the president, Woodrow Wilson. (laughs) And he wasn't, to start off with, particularly supportive of women's suffrage. But he did gradually come round to the cause. And, in fact, 
very interesting point is that he then employed Alice Dewar Miller as a speechwriter yes. for him. So a lot of the pro-suffrage things that he was saying later on were her words, and that helped to push through the 19th Amendment in 1920 when women got the vote. I was amazed when you told me that because mm. I hadn't found that out in my mm. research. And I just think that is so um, incredible that an eloquent and funny writer has used her skill to actually have really strong political yeah. influence. Yeah. And it, it just shows how women at the time had to use alternative means because mm. they were outside of the main system, weren't yeah. they? Which I suppose was... using the president as a mouthpiece <laughs> is kind of quite a good alternative means. It's quite effective. If you're, if you're going to look for yeah. someone to voice your opinions, yeah. I think, yeah, go for the top. Yeah, Go for the top guy. So I thought that was amazing yeah. and really good bit of information about yes. her. And so, what an achievement as yeah. well for her. But as well as these poems, she was writing other things. As I said, she had to make an income to support her family. And she was writing novels, and they were pretty light-hearted stuff. The first one was published in 1916. It was called Come Out of the Kitchen, which sounds like it's potentially going to be a feminist work. But really, it was a fairly comic comedy of manners, light-hearted. We might even call it chick-lit these days. (laughs) And this was later adapted as a play and a film. What do, what do you think of the term chicklet? Do you think um, it's a dismissive term where it would mean that no men are going to read those books? Because I think a lot of writers will very proudly sit within that genre. So they mm. claim that chicklet genre as what they do. And it's a very valid thing to write for a particular audience. Of course, there's nothing stopping men reading it if they want to. No. But I think it is good for any genre writer to be focused on their readers and what their readers want. Absolutely. Not try to please everybody. Yeah. Hmm. And if if we're going to be called chicks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's all right. So we've talked a little bit about heterodoxy, but... Alice and other writers also had another lunch gathering which met at the Algonquin Hotel and people have probably heard of that because it famously became known as the Algonquin Round Table Mm -hmm. and that's most closely associated with Dorothy Parker these days but Alice Stewart Miller was a member as well Um, and the association with Dorothy Parker is quite relevant because it was this kind of very witty, concise way of writing to put across important points. Alice's other works, she did screenplays as poetry and she was involved in the film industry which was emerging at the time and later in her life one of her most famous works was called The White Cliffs and this is quite unusual because it's a novel but it's all written in verse so it's about an American woman who goes to England and she marries an English man and then he, it's set in the First World War, he goes off and is killed quite quickly after they are married and it's about her attitudes towards England and how much she loves being there and she wants to stay there and I think then she has a son who goes on to fight in the Second World War and This was quite an influential book at the time. I mean, even Winston Churchill credited it with influencing American attitudes to their involvement in the war. Right, because they didn't join until 1917, did they? Which was... Yeah, and uh, actually we'd be talking about the Second World War because it was 1940 when it came out. Right. So this was... They were late to that one as well. Yeah, they were. (laughs) 
Yeah, so this was influencing Americans to be more positive towards the idea of entering the war. Oh, uh, of course you just mentioned Churchill. Sorry, I don't know why. <laughs> totally forgot <laughs> who the Prime Minister was at the oh, time. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> I wasn't talking about the dog off the advert. <laughs> so this was actually not that long before Alice herself died. She died in 1942. And she's not necessarily that well known today at least certainly not in comparison with for example Dorothy Parker whom Mm. I mentioned and certainly not really in the UK so I think that makes her a really interesting person to talk about because she had a lot of political influence and really excellent quality of writing and lots of humour. Yes I love her use of humour and I think it actually is one of the most effective ways when you take this problem that of, of the struggle for suffrage and how ludicrous it is mm. that women weren't allowed to vote. Mm. To to satirise it yeah. is is just such a powerful way of going about it. And I still I'm still feeling really good about that her, that, that she influenced the president. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's just that really is. Well, I've lost the power of speech. Okay, we're going to listen to one of her poems now called "The Revolt of Mother." Um, and then we'll have a bit of a chat about that. Okay. She starts this with a quotation, which supposedly comes from the speech of almost any congressman, and they would start their words with, every true woman feels. <laughs> and then they'd go on to justify whatever argument they were coming up with, and this is her response to that in the character of Mother. I am old-fashioned, And I think it right that man should know by nature's laws eternal the proper way to rule, to earn, to fight, and exercise those functions called paternal. But even I a little bit rebel at finding that he knows my job as well. At least he's always ready to expound it, especially in legislative hall. The joys, the cares, the halos that surround it, how women feel, he knows that best of all. In fact, his thesis is that no one can know what is womanly except a man. I am old-fashioned, and I am content when he explains the world of art and science and government to him divinely sent. I drink it in with ladylike compliance, but cannot listen. No, I'm only human, while he instructs me how to be a woman. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't yeah. it? Way before the term mansplaining was yes. coined. <laughs> but it's so interesting that women were suffering the same thing back then <laughs> as, as we're still complaining about yeah. now. But what what do you particularly like about the way this poem's put together? I like the way that the writer is using a persona in this poem. So this is not Alice herself speaking. She's inhabited the character of Mother, who we can assume is probably... A middle-aged woman. She's sort of fairly conservative with a small c. She has gone along quite happily with life and the situation as it is. She does think that there are different things that men and women should do. She's quite happy for men to rule, to earn, to fight, as she says. But even somebody like this is starting to think, hang on a minute, you men should not be telling me what it's like to be a woman. Yes, yeah. So, as you said earlier, she's beautifully concise, isn't she? Mm. Doesn't waste any words. The character is lovely. And the revolt of mother. Mm. So, mother is actually who who would 
accept all this yeah. <laughs> has kind of reached her limits at the end. Yeah. What's that? But I'm only human while he... I cannot listen. No, I'm only human while he instructs me to be a woman. Mm. Yes. That, I guess, is showing that there are... That's the outside limit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is somebody who has been quite happy to... Um, exist within the patriarchy that's all she's ever known she's not somebody who'd be considered an activist or campaigner she is the middle-aged woman who's perhaps ignored by society is just expected to be everybody's mum make sure everybody's happy and content and um, not upset by anything and yet even she can't take it anymore yes Yes. So it's a really, really good way of of, uh, showing that um, point by creating that character like that, I think, because her voice has got some authority Mm. from from the experience that she's she's had. Yes, it's the idea that she's a matriarch in her own family, and perhaps that wisdom has power and can be channeled towards activism. Mm. I wonder if that... um, would have caught the mood at the time of women actually getting really fed up of mm. not having the vote. Mm. Because for a long time, it, not everybody supported, including women, oh, including not women. everybody yeah. supported mm. the vote and, and thought it was sort of women being going too far, mm. going too far, pushing their limits, not understanding that women's role is domestic. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose um, a lot of what... Alice Stewart Miller is talking about in this collection is not women versus men, it's anti-suffrage versus suffrage mm. campaigners, because some of the antis were women. Yes. Which is not surprising, given mm. that they were brought up in a patriarchy and yeah. had accepted it. Mm. But that's why I like this, that, that, that this mother who's had enough when yeah. a man's <laughs> telling her. <laughs> right, that's it. I went along with all of this. Yeah. <laughs> but now that's that's enough. You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. Okay, we're going to look at another poem, and we can come back and think about the the two of them and and their similarities, maybe. This is called Why We Oppose Pockets for Women, which is in the form of a list. One, because pockets are not a natural right. Two, because the great majority of women do not want pockets. If they did, they would have them. Three, because whenever women have had pockets... They have not used them. Four, because women are required to carry enough things as it is without the additional burden of pockets. Five, because it would make dissension between husband and wife as to whose pockets were to be filled. Six, because it would destroy man's chivalry toward woman if he did not have to carry all her things in his pockets. Seven, because men are men and women are women, We must not fly in the face of nature. Eight, because pockets have been used by men to carry tobacco, pipes, whiskey, flasks, chewing gum and compromising letters, we see no reason to suppose that women would use them more wisely. 
and <laughs> sorry about laughing while I was reading it, but I'm just so amused by it because it's obviously a list of points about pockets that actually got used mm. for reasons why women shouldn't have the vote. Yeah, and a lot of them are presenting it as that it would, it's a benefit to women not to have pockets or to have the vote. And they're trying to persuade women that it's in their best interests yes. to go without. Going back to echoing mother, being told as a woman what what your best interests are. Mm. Yeah, so for example, that number four, women are required to carry enough things as it is. It's sort of saying, oh, we're not putting this additional burden onto you. Yes, without the additional burden of pockets, yes. Don't worry, your pretty little head, dear. But she has taken most of the major arguments that were being made at the time. There's some great artwork from the time, which actually we could put on the the page showing what can happen if women are overburdened like this. So I've seen pictures that actually depict probably most of these Mm. arguments. Which one do you find particularly amusing? Well, I suppose the last one about how men use pockets (laughs) for disreputable purposes. So that's kind of... Compromising letters. Yeah, yeah, compromising letters. Well, you don't need need pockets for your letters. Because I suppose that uh, is using the tactic of pretending that they're criticising men. Men have used them for all of these purposes and women probably would as well. It's as if to say that women are not going to be any better than men and men are therefore not wonderful even though we know they're sort of arguing the opposite yes it's do you think it's suggesting that um women could be corrupted as men have been Mm. if they were to have pockets yeah so right if they were allowed into the political system they would be just as bad yeah so better keep them out (laughs) yeah yeah i wonder what people made of this when it was published in the um the new york tribune Mm. It was, they were obviously popular because she kept going yes. for a long time. And that's and then... a very mainstream publication, so that would have reached a wide audience. And I would imagine that there was you know, quite a variety of views towards it. Some people would have written it off as being silly. Other people would have been very influenced by that and that would have changed their thinking. I think because I'm quite a fan of humour as mm. a, a tool in communication... I really think this is a great way of making mm. an argument. I think it's very, very strong. Stronger than making it, say, in legal terms yeah. or, or anything like that, because it, it well, it ridicules it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, people like reading funny stuff, and it's accessible to a wide range of people. Yeah. There are so many good poems in this collection, Are Women People, by Alice Stewart Miller. It was actually difficult for us to choose a few, wasn't it? It was, yes. We thought we can't really cover all of them in this podcast, but we wanted to pick a couple more to look at. Um, So which one have you chosen next? Next, I've chosen Our Idea of Nothing at All. And this one starts with a quote. I am opposed to woman suffrage, but I'm not opposed to woman which was from the anti-suffrage speech of Mr Webb of North Carolina. Now, we don't know who Mr Webb is, but I should imagine that he would represent the opinions of many men of that time. Oh, women, have you heard the news of charity and grace? Look, look how joy and gratitude are beaming in my face. For Mr Webb is not opposed to woman in her place. Oh, Mr. Webb, how kind you are to let us live at all, to let us light the kitchen range and tidy up the hall, 
to tolerate the female sex in spite of Adam's fall. Oh, girls, suppose that Mr. Webb should alter his decree. Suppose he were opposed to us, opposed to you and me. What would be left for us to do except to cease to be? Oh, I love that one. It's really funny, isn't it? And it's just so sarcastic. It is. Biting me so. Magnanimous Mr. Webb, who's not opposed to women. <laughs> Good for Mr. Webb. <laughs> yes, thank you, Mr. Webb. That's so kind of you to say so. Yes, um, it, it's really great. I, the, it sounds so sing-song, doesn't it? And I really liked that rhyme scheme that is akin to a child's rhyme or a, or a gentle song, disguising <laughs> the serious bite of this message, which actually turns out in the end, to be quite sinister. It's quite dark, this idea that women will cease to be, that he doesn't really approve their existence in Mm. that circumstance. Yeah. We have a reference in the poem to... (laughs) One of the sarcastic lines is um, that he's tolerating the female sex in spite of Adam's fall, which, of course, is due to the, the Bible story of the fall of Adam, which was blamed on Eve, for making him eat an apple. Yeah, she made him do it. She made him do it, yeah. And uh, that's why women are supposed to be subservient to men and suffer in childbirth. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the Bible says. Well, and, then, um, he was just following instructions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was he supposed to do? So, um, yes, that is actually what it says in the Bible, which a lot of people know already, but is still used as a way to control and justify the subservience of women by, not by everybody, obviously, no. Caroline, but certain groups in the far right of religious organisations. There are parallels in modern society, especially in some things that have been going on in America in recent years. Yes. Although this was written some time ago, and it was about the argument around suffrage, which has obviously been won, and now women have a vote, and apparently equal status in society. And yet there are still some things that go on that suggest that they're not so very equal. And I've got a quote here from someone talking about women, where he is... Oh yes, that's it. Beauty and elegance, whether in a woman, a building, or a work of art, is not just superficial or something pretty to see. So this commentator is seeing women as objects, saying that beauty goes all the way through them. There isn't anything much else to them apart from beauty and elegance. Yeah, and he actually blatantly compares them to buildings and works of art, things that you buy. So who said this then, Nicola? Ah, (laughs) funny you should ask that, Caroline. It was President Trump. (laughs) President Trump. And what I've been looking at which I won't spend a long time on here, but I think I might make another section of the podcast to go on the page, is of how these ideas of women being subject to what men want and held to the standards of what men want from women is still a prevalent and widely communicated idea when you've got the most powerful person in America. And I've got 25 quotes here from Donald Trump yeah. using very sexist language. That was quite a mild one. I might just uh, have a look at one more. That one, yeah. Yeah. One. <laughs> look at that face. Would anybody vote for that? Can you imagine that face of our next president? I mean, 
she is a woman, so I'm not supposed to say bad things. But really, folks, come on, are we serious? So Donald Trump, what with him being such an oil painting himself? <laughs> um, no, that actually does show the point, is that he is not holding men up to those sorts of no. standards. And so it does relate to this attitude of Mr. Webb and his kindness at letting women live on his terms. If, if you do accept this, if you accept men's definition and you're okay with that and you allow them to do that, what when you're what happens when you fall out of favour with them? That's kind of her question, isn't mm. it? So we've got Mr. Webb putting forward what he probably considers to be a very rational point. <laughs> He's not opposed to women. He's a very yes. reasonable person, this Mr. Webb. Yes, absolutely. And so we just thought we'd touch on that idea today because when we look at this, these poems from yesteryear, and in some ways we sort of can smugly think, oh, we've come on so far. Does beg the question, how far? It's something worth thinking about sometimes. So let's move on to another short poem. And this has got some similarities in the sense that it's quite a simple rhyme structure. It's almost like a child's poem. She says at the beginning, um, with apologies to James Whitcomb Riley, and he was an American poet who did write things for children. So she's sort of parodying his style. And this one again starts with a quotation. This is from an editorial in the London Globe, which was arguing against the co-education of boys and girls. And they said, the result of taking second place to girls at school is that the boy feels a sense of inferiority that he is never afterward able entirely to shake off. And this is Alice Dewar Miller's response to this. There, little girl, don't read. You're fond of your books, I know. But brother might mope if he had no hope of getting ahead of you. It's dull for a boy who cannot lead. There, little girl, don't read. So in just a few lines, Alice Stewart Miller is putting across this idea that an argument against women's education is that it might make boys sad not to be at the top <laughs> of the class. Oh no! Oh, we, we can't have boys' feelings being hurt like that. In, it, the thing is, we're, we're laughing about it, but it was an attitude that was truly espoused, and, yeah. uh, and still is. Mm. I think that's why it is so funny, isn't it? Because we do hear of a lot of situations to do with women's rights where men's feelings might be hurt <laughs> if you keep campaigning. You can't have that. No. No, and because women are brought up to consider men's feelings so much, some women really do internalise that and think that is right. Yes. That is the right way to behave. And actually, that you're not very nice if you don't... You're not being kind. No, you're not being kind. buzzword at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can get t-shirts. Be kind on kindness. Yeah. Right and kind, that's another thing where it does seem completely reasonable to start with. Of course, you want to be kind to everybody. But then when be kind means have no boundaries, then it starts getting a bit more challenging. Or be subservient. Caroline, what other comments did you have on this? Yeah, so there is this the dichotomy between the two things within this poem. There's girls' education and there's boys' feelings. And in that quotation at the beginning from the London Globe, the boys' feelings are much more important. You can't have him being feeling inferior. And they haven't seemed to recognise that that is the situation for girls and women as what I suppose they perceive to be the natural order of things. Girls have been encouraged to feel inferior all along. 
And as soon as that starts happening to boys, the London Globe and other commentators suddenly start to take notice. Yes. Well, the traditional position of women in society is as inferior. Mm. And so for many people that seems quite natural. Mm. Which is again why, and I keep going on about it, but I find women from this period who challenged all these ideas, I find them really brave Mm. because there's so many women now you know, 120 years later or so, that still don't challenge mm. the sort of notions that Dewar Miller was protesting against. Because although she talks about suffrage a lot, and that argument was won, and, you know, that's all over, the other issues that come up in her poems are still completely relevant. On the subject of girls' education, this is another poem, The Maiden's View a speaker at the National Education Association, advised girls not to study algebra. Many girls, he said, had lost their souls through this study. The idea has been taken up with enthusiasm. I will avoid equations and shun the naughty surd. I must be aware the perfect square. Through it, young girls have erred. And when men mention rule of three, pretend I have not heard. Through Stern's delightful theorems, elicit joys ashore. Through permutations and combinations, my woman's heart allure. I'll never study algebra, but keep my spirit pure. (laughs) Again, sarcastic (laughs) to its very core. Because, of course, women can study algebra and maths and anything else they want to. But it was an attitude that was prevalent. So, once again, she's taking the mickey. Yeah, and I think still there's some kind of encouragement for girls to say, oh, they're terrible at maths, even with initiatives to get girls more interested in STEM and the careers that follow. There is still that whole idea that it's not really a girl's subject. Yes, that's right. It's one of the reasons is the way that maths is taught in a very competitive way, where speed is of the essence. Mm. And the girls, because of their conditioning or, or maybe because of their nature, very often don't like being told that they're wrong and very quickly mm. because they haven't got time to work things out. When they're given enough time, and I'm not making this up off the top of my head, mm. I've got a book about it over there, they actually really enjoy it. Mm. But they don't like the yeah the competitive nature of it. Mm. When they discover they can do problem solving at their own pace and that they can do these methods and so on, it's actually quite an enjoyable subject. Mm. But it, it's taught in quite a macho way. So there you go. There's another really short poem here called A Sex Difference. Read that out because it's only four lines. When men in Congress come to blows at something someone said, I always notice that it shows their blood is quick and red. But if two women disagree with very little noise, it proves, and this seems strange to me, that women have no poise. So the idea of women being emotional and unfitted for public life and the idea that women don't like each other as well. That's a common theory. So you've got men arguing and shouting and that shows that they're very committed to their ideas. Uh, Women disagreeing. Oh, well, women don't agree with each other anyway. You can can just discount what they say. Or they're just being aggressive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that is a big one, isn't it? If you do disagree with somebody, then people will see that as being aggressive and angry. Yes. Um, Because you're a woman, even if you're just saying a different point of view from someone else. Yeah. So these double standards that she was pointing out are still very much in the public domain. And we were wondering if if it 
has sort of become more so in the world of social media because mm. you can see publicly discussions and how the response to when women speak and so yes. on much more publicly than say 30 years ago you wouldn't have seen that very much in yes yeah, so you might have got some bloke down the pub spouting off about <laughs> something that a woman has said to him but now you've got some bloke from all sorts of different countries right so there's some of Alice Dewar Miller's work and there's a lot more so I definitely encourage everybody to look that up you can find it on Project Gutenberg a lot of it is in the public domain now and there are many poems that you can look the book that we've been focusing on is called Our Women People she did have other collections as well and she did various books which we mentioned earlier but for now thank you very much for listening and we look forward to seeing you again on she wrote too you have been listening to she wrote too with nicola morgan and caroline rance to make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode subscribe at she wrote dot com that's she wrote dot com where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks thank you so much for listening and we can't wait to welcome you again next time mm-hmm.